0: I think with Bitcoin, there's been ups and downs. We've also had the speaker yesterday joke about it a bit. Um, But um, I think it's going to be interesting to hear what what Imran's going to say today about Bitcoin, the future of Bitcoin, and how it will be impacting the financial services sector going forward. So he's going to do his talk, and then uh, we'll uh, have some time for questions at the end. Thanks, Imran.
1: Um, Cool. Can everybody hear me? Okay, so. Uh to disappoint you, but this talk is going to be about everything but how you can make money on Bitcoin. It's going to be more about the technology and the usefulness and how it's going to impact financial services. So ask us, I'll ask a slightly different question to Neil. Um, a lot of people maybe have invested in it, but how many people used Bitcoin and actually did a Bitcoin transaction? Okay, so uh, not so many. And how many people, obviously, especially the ones who've lost money, how many of you think it's a scam or a bubble? It's a complete waste of time. Because I was actually hoping there might be more people like that, but maybe if you if you think it's a scam, then you're not going to you're not going to come to one of these talks. Okay, but um, now I'm going to start. But instead of talking about Bitcoin, I'm first going to tell you about something else. I'm going to tell you about uh, is this thing working? Is this thing on? Okay. Instead of telling you about Bitcoin, I'm going to tell you about. Uh... Okay, if you guys, uh, would one of you guys mind helping me? Oh, there we go. Yeah. Instead of that, I'm going to tell you about 56k modems. So um, before the days of the internet, when you know when we were connected online, we had to use these things to get online, and uh, you had to actually dial it through a phone line. And um, so one of the things about this is that I grew up in the 90s. So I actually got to see the internet go through many stages of evolution. I got to see, you know, when I was a kid in school, my parents got me and my brother one of these. And, you know, we used to browse the internet all the time, go to websites, download stuff. But uh, here's the thing about the internet in those days. Uh, It sucked. It was very slow. Uh, 50 k modems took forever to load web pages. Um, It was very difficult to find anything because search engines didn't work like they did today. And the setup was extremely complicated. You had to go through configuring IP addresses and MAC addresses and whatnot just to get online. And then your mom calls somebody and call hangs and you get kicked off. (laughs) But it uh, it only took about 20 years before we got from there to, where do I point this thing? Over there? There we go. Before we got from there to here. So this is my uh, nieces and nephew. And uh, think about this they will never grow up in a world without the internet. So it's like air to them, they, you know, they breathe it. And uh, I think when it really hit me and my wife how far the internet has come, was when in, well the oldest one, was eight, she started sending us emails. And uh, the youngest one, who's four, uh, she can't read, but she can use YouTube and Netflix. So it's something I want you to keep in mind when I go about this talk, is that even if something seems very complicated now, even if it seems like nobody gets it, people are very negative about it, it only takes 20 years, it only takes a while before we get from, before we get here. Sorry, you got my uh, clicker? No, do you mind? <laughs> <laughs> Technical difficulties. <laughs> cool, so, wait over there. Okay, great, so, rather than tell you what's cool about Bitcoin, let me show it to you. So, if I had to give any of you my email addresses, you can send me a document, you could send me a file, You can send me a video. You can send me pretty much anything. But can you send me five rand? So you can't, right? You need my bank details, and it takes two days to do an EFT, and it's quite a process involved. But you can if you are using Bitcoin. So if you think about it, it's actually quite strange, because why is it that we can send anything on the top, but we can't send money? Because money actually is just another kind of data. So only 7% of the uh, rands exist as physical notes, the rest of the bits in a computer. So why is this data different to other data? Well, like I said, it isn't if you're using Bitcoin. So I'll just take you through a transaction. Um, sorry, you can tell me where do I point this thing? There we go. So I'm going to take you through a typical transaction, might um, be with Bitcoin. So in case you didn't know, um, take a lot accepts Bitcoin. And kind of, so I bought this book called The Bitcoin Standard. It's a a pretty good book. You guys check it out. What you have to do is you proceed to checkout. You choose pay fast. And then, um, like they showed us on, sorry, I'm really struggling with this thing. Do you guys have a replacement or? Can I? So, yeah, one of these QR codes will come up, like, you know, like they showed us on Alipay or uh, WeChat. You scan this with a phone app. And then, uh, there you can see there's the amount, and there's the fee, and you hit send, and it pays. So on a very basic level, what Bitcoin can do is replicate the function of a credit card. But, uh, so why would you go to the stubble and use this new system? What does it offer you? One of the key differences between this and a credit, well, there's a few key differences, is one is there's no sign-up involved. So to get a credit card, you have to get a credit check, and you have to go through KYC, and you need to have a bank account and all that. Um, Bitcoin works on the same principle as an email. You download an app, and you can start using it. Uh, The other thing, and we'll go a little bit more into this later in the talk, is that it's a bit more secure than a credit card. So with a credit card, you have to put in your card number, and that gets stored on servers, which means that it can be hacked, and then the money can get stolen. But with Bitcoin, and again, we'll go into this later, you can pay in a way that doesn't reveal confidential information about yourself. And the third one is that the settlement happens in 10 minutes, whereas the credit card happens in two days. So funds will get locked, but the merchant will only get it in about two days. But is that enough to get people to learn this new complicated technology with all of the baggage that comes with it? And the answer is no. This is not going to change. This is not the reason why Bitcoin could be successful. But this is what Bitcoin could do 10 years ago. So the technology's come a long way since then. And let me show you what Bitcoin can do today. So, uh, this is a website called Satoshi's Place. And how it works is it's got a million pixels. And you can paint one Satoshi to to paint one pixel. So Satoshi is a hundred millionth of a Bitcoin. It's a very small amount. And uh, as you can imagine, when uh, you give people on the internet license to paint uh, whatever they want, they paint all kinds of uh, weird and wonderful things. And most days the site is uh, not so safe for work. I actually had to uh, censor it a bit. But if you, if you want to see the uncensored version, uh, Satoshi's place. So I found myself a nice little spot over there. And uh, I wrote a message that I thought was important to uh, share with the world and uh, so it so save you after that I hit submit and then another one of these uh, QR codes comes up so another time it's 940 so I scan the QR code my phone app and then it's again payment sent still 940 and there's the message and uh, it's still 940 so Oh, and for, the, for doing this, I paid a nice round number, zero. So let me tell you what just happened. I just paid someone one and a half US cents. Now, half a cent is an amount so small it doesn't exist in our financial system. You can't send one and a half cents. But you can, and I did it so instantly. They got the money in the same minute and they're able to spend it. I did it globally. These people are in another country. And I did it at near zero cost. This is called the Lightning Network. This was launched uh, earlier this year for Bitcoin. It's still in development, it still has things to work out, but this is the reason why I'm excited about Bitcoin. Global, global commerce. And the rest of the talk is gonna be me explaining how all of this works. So I've kind of got two definitions for Bitcoin that I'm gonna structure my talk around. The first one is that um, Bitcoin is a new technology to transfer value instantly and securely without third parties. And that is gonna be the technical part of my talk. Uh, That's gonna be the first part, what is Bitcoin, how does it work? And then, there we go. And uh, the second part of my talk is going to be structured on this definition, which is Bitcoin is the world's first global money and unified payment network. And that's gonna be the more business side of our talk. How does it affect us in financial services? Why should we care? So let's start. Firstly, how Bitcoin works. This is much better. <laughs> so, the way I see it, um, there are four fundamental technologies behind Bitcoin. And these are blockchain, peer-to-peer networks, uh, proof of work, and cryptography. And if that sounds like a buzzword soup, don't worry, we're not gonna talk about any of that. Uh, instead, instead, we're gonna talk about how Bitcoin is, has a distributed ledger. We're gonna talk about how it's decentralized. We're going to talk about the economic incentives that underlie the system. And we're going to talk about security. And since uh, security is arguably the most important feature, let's start with that. So um, before I can tell you how Bitcoin improves on the current system, what is the current system? So uh, this is a credit card. It's it's not my credit card. It is a credit card. And and, uh, the credit card's got three security features that we care about. It's got card numbers in the front and back. It's got a magnetic strip, it's got a SIM card. In security terms, we would describe the credit card as having a very large attack surface. So what that means is that if you're a hacker, you love this thing, because if you copy the numbers in the front and back, you can steal money. If you copy the magnetic strip, it's not encrypted, so you can steal someone's money. And the SIM card is a little bit more tricky, that you need a pin code to unlock. But then you need one of those uh, physical card reader thingies, so you need specialized hardware. And you also need to be in the same place as the person. Uh, you're doing the transaction with, so not suitable for online purchases. And it's because a credit card is so insecure that we have about uh, $22 billion every year in credit card fraud, which is more than the GDP of some countries. And it's also the reason why my bank uh, sends me emails like this, where they tell me, people are going to skim your card and take the magnetic strip, and people are going to get your card number and spend without your PIN. And it it really doesn't seem to be getting better because uh, this is my favorite one, this is new. It's called tap-to-pay. Do we get sound? I mean, you get the picture. <laughs> so, uh, so credit cards are not, you know, not, uh, not exactly getting more secure over time. How does Bitcoin solve this? In Bitcoin, there are two basic security features you need to care about. Um, there's the private key, and there's addresses. And you can think of the security model as very similar to what we already know with email. So anybody can send an email to an address. Anybody can send Bitcoin to a Bitcoin address. But only the person with the private key or the password can actually access the Bitcoin in that address or access the email in that address and send the email from that address or send the Bitcoin from that address. So let's say I wanted to do a hypothetical transaction with with, uh, Pepper Pig. How it would work is uh, I'd find out what Pepper Pig's address is and I'd send the Bitcoin to that address like I would an email. And then, here's the important part, I will sign that transaction with a digital signature. So you can think of these digital signatures um, kind of like the combination lock to a safe. If you try and guess what the combination is to a safe, you're not gonna get anywhere, but if I tell you what the combination is, you can plug it in and the safe will open, and then you can verify that I gave you the correct code. And in Bitcoin, I think, uh, you can try and crack this and you know, guess the right signature for the right transaction, and uh, I think, if I remember correctly, I think uh, you have a higher probability of winning the lottery nine times in a row, and then getting struck by lightning on the way to collect your winnings <laughs> then, uh, when cracking one of these codes. And if you had a million of the most powerful computers, uh, it would take you longer than the age of the universe. So um, this is pretty secure. I mean, it's called Elliptic Curve uh, digital, sig- uh, digital Signature Algorithm. It's all math, and you guys are actually, so go check it out, it's interesting stuff. But what it means in layman's terms is that if you get a digital signature and it's valid, without a bank, without anybody else, you can verify that signature by checking that, it, you know, by checking that it's valid, and then you know that you got paid, you know it's not fraudulent, you know the money is coming, you don't need a third party or bank to verify that payment. But now, that's between me and Peppa Pe- Pig, and how does everyone else get to know about this transaction? That PaperPig actually has this money. And this is important because of a problem we have on the internet that doesn't exist in the real world. And this is what it is. So, in the real world, you have scarcity. If you give someone a music CD, I, I now lose the CD and PaperPig has the CD. Copying has a cost. Uh, so, it's not a simple matter of just, um, you, know, you know, there's a physical scarcity on every physical object that you give someone. On the internet, that doesn't apply. You can copy an MP3 and send to Mickey Mouse and John Snow, whoever you want to a million copies if you want to, and you still have the MP3. Which is a problem if you're dealing with money. Because what stops me from copying like a million, 200 notes and becoming an online millionaire? Well, this is the double-spin problem, and we do have a solution to that in the current era. The solution we have right now is you put the banks in charge. So you have one party or a group of parties centrally controlling the ledger, and what they will do is whenever there's a transaction, my bank will get in touch with Pepper Pig's bank And between the two of them and the central banks and the clearing houses and the payment processes and all of the hundreds of parties that get involved in this, they will make sure that all the debits equal all the credits, no new money is created or destroyed, and when I transfer to Paper Pig, everything works properly. And this is part of the reason why the system is costly and why it uh, takes so long to reach these settlements. So how does Bitcoin solve this problem? That takes us to the next part, which is, well, how Bitcoin is decentralized. So what Bitcoin works in a different model. When I do a transaction to Peppa Pig, both of us will tell everyone we know, and they will tell everyone that they know. And within about uh, 20 seconds, almost everyone in the entire world on the Bitcoin network will know that I paid Peppa Pig. They'll know that that Bitcoin has been spent, you can't spend it again. They'll know to update the ledger. And most importantly, they'll have that digital signature. So with that signature, they can verify it's a, fr- it's a real payment. It's not Peppa trying to steal somebody's money. Peppa has those Bitcoins, and I don't. And uh, any, so any one of these computers can verify, w- anyone can run one of these, and they're called nodes. So they're distributed all around the world. Anybody can run a node if you, have, if you want to give up some bandwidth and you know, download the software. In fact, uh, if you look over there into the Africa, you can see a nice cluster over there. I'm in, I'm in there somewhere as well. But... Uh, what these nodes do is that Bitcoin's solution is that instead of putting one special party in charge, you put everyone in charge. So every single person can run a node. Anybody who's running a node can verify, can check, can maintain the ledger. Everyone keeps a copy of the ledger. Everyone checks everybody else to make sure that nobody's cheating. So this is appeared to be a network, but it doesn't solve the double-spin problem on its own. Because you see there's something pretty sneaky I can do. So what I can do is I can pay Paper Pig, but at the exact same time, I send a Bitcoin to Jon Snow. Now, uh, Jon Snow knows nothing. He doesn't know... <laughs> so he doesn't, uh, he doesn't know that, that I've already spent this money, because he sees the, the signature, and it's a valid signature. So how this is going to play out is that he's going to, when we broadcast these transactions to everybody, half the network is going to think the Bitcoin belongs to Peppa Pig, and the other half is going to think it belongs to Jon Snow. And when these two um, sides of the network talk to each other, they're gonna fight. Because the red ones are gonna say, you guys are scammers, that Bitcoin belongs to Peppa Pig. And the orange ones are gonna say, no, you guys are the scammers, the Bitcoin belongs to Jon Snow. And uh, this is not a trivial problem. This problem went unsolved in computer science for I think about 20, 30 years. And uh, the problem is how do you get a bunch of computers to trust each, a bunch of computers that don't know each other to reach a consensus uh, without putting someone centrally in charge? And the solution to that, you probably heard of, it's called blockchain. So blockchain gets talked about a lot. Um, I think it's been, it was mentioned in the opening plenary. Uh, I'm not going to go into detail on how exactly it works. I'll give you kind of an overview. And part of the reason is because I, think, I don't think blockchain is the most interesting or important thing about Bitcoin. And if you want to know more, you can, there's a lot of resources out there. But uh, fun fact about blockchain. Uh, the guy who invented it is the same guy who invented Bitcoin. So uh, blockchain was invented by an anonymous person on the internet, and we have no idea who they are. This is probably how it works. So the ledger is not one long Excel file with a whole lot of transactions. Instead, it's, it's a bunch of smaller files, and these files are called blocks. So you can think of these blocks as just every one of them is another page in a very, very long bank statement. I think we're on block 550,000 or something about now. So that's, every, that's just another page of transactions that have happened over the last almost 10 years. So when transactions are made, they go to these waiting lists, and everyone kind of keeps their own waiting list. And every so often, someone will come onto the network and propose a new block. They'll say, let's update the ledger, let's add a new page of transactions, number 500,001. And they'll go to the waiting list, and they'll include some transactions. And then once it gets, uh, once it gets included in year, then uh, everyone can download the latest block 500,001, they can check all the signatures and make sure it's valid. And now all of these different computers are on the same page. They're in synchronization. They, they, they agree on, on what, which transactions happen in what order. And then when the next block comes along, everyone will, well, who's ever creating that block will see, know that Bitcoin has been spent, and it won't get included. But now, you can see that with this system, whoever is creating these blocks has a lot of power in the system because they get to decide transaction order. Which is more or less saying they get to decide who gets paid and who doesn't. So again, like so, this is the thing. One of the is that blockchain on its own doesn't actually solve the double spend problem. You're still kind of left with this issue of who creates blocks, and the solution to that is called proof of work, or a lot of people have heard of mining. So I actually think mining is a pretty bad metaphor because you know what these guys these guys are a lot more like bookkeepers or accountants. They maintain the integrity of the ledger. So how it works is like this and this is probably the most important thing about bitcoin is that who can propose a block anybody any one of those nodes that i showed you earlier around the world can propose a block and if you do if you choose to do so you call the miner and so let's say you were to propose block 500001 you'd go to the waiting list and you'd include these transactions but now you don't get to just put your block out there onto the network and everybody has to agree to it. You first have to go. Th- you first have to do some work, and this is you have to solve a complex math problem. So now you don't actually have to solve it yourself with a pen and a paper. Your computer will do it for you. But the idea is, it's another one of these combination locks. Very complicated to calculate. It takes the network about 10 minutes on average to compute the next block. But anybody can plug in the solution, verify it, and confirm yes, this person did the work. So they spent electricity in time and hardware. And now, why would anyone do this? Why would anyone go through this hassle of uh, you know, spending computing power to create blocks? And the answer is that there's money involved. If, you, if your block gets accepted by the network, if you're the first one to do it, you get a mining reward. So you get paid some Bitcoin, and this is how new Bitcoin enters the system. And the economics of this is a bit beyond the scope of the talk, but if you're interested, um, get me in the questions and I'll go into more detail on that. But you also get fees from the people that you include. And again, so now you might be wondering, so this is, how, this is how we decide who gets to create these blocks. You have to commit some work, but why would we go through all of this trouble of making, you have to spend electricity and computing power to update the ledger so everyone can say in synchronization. And this is, and, th- and the reason is this. There's, this. there's a fundamental asymmetry at the heart of Bitcoin that doesn't exist in the current financial system that makes the whole thing tie together, and it's this. Fraud is expensive but verification is cheap. It takes 10 minutes for everyone in the network to find new, to create a new block. 10 minutes of electricity, hardware, computer power, resources, all of that. But it only takes one second to verify a block and check all the signatures and make sure that it's a valid block. So what that means is that if you're a scammer, if you're trying to come to the system and you know, spend bitcoins that have already been spent, or create bitcoins that didn't exist, or take fees that aren't yours, you lose a lot of, you're going to lose a lot of that money. Whereas if you maintain the ledger honestly, you'll get paid. So the honest miners, the ones who maintain the integrity of the system, they get paid. And the ones who, are, who try and cheat the system or try and commit fraud, they go broke. They lose their money. They lose their hardware investment. They lose their electricity and time that they spent. And kind of how the system is structured to work is that we always follow the ledger that has the most number of Highest difficulty problem solved. The most proof of work. The most work has gone into producing that ledger. So, if you want, so a lot of people think that blockchain is immutable. They think you can't reverse it, but it actually is. It, you can reverse it, and you can reverse it if you can solve more problems than everyone else. Which means that if you want to defraud the ledger, you would have to solve more problems than everyone in the entire world who's mining, honestly, and still have enough of an advantage that you can sustain it over a very long period. So. It's economically unfeasible to change the ledger. It hasn't, in 10 years that Bitcoin's been around, it hasn't, it hasn't happened. And over time it's become more and more difficult as more people mine and take the integrity of the system. So, Bitcoin is for all intents and purposes you know, irreversible. Now, if I bring it all together, all, all of this stuff, what I was kind of saying with how it works is that we use the, the cryptography is there to, to make sure that you can pay somebody else and they can verify it. After you do these transactions, they get distributed on a peer-to-peer network. The network, every one of the network stays in synchronization using this technology called blockchain. And the blockchain itself is secured by a technology, by a process called proof of work. And all of this comes together so that I can uh, write nonsense on the internet. <laughs> and uh, so you remember, and that's why I say at, at the start of the talk, Bitcoin is a new technology that you can transfer value instantly and securely and most importantly, without third parties. Uh, but I think there's a simple explanation for that. Uh, Bitcoin is a new financial system. And for the implications of, of that financial system, that we're going to talk about in the second part of my talk. Of course, cool, so everybody uh, still with me? If you uh, so if you lost, now's the time to find yourself, because uh, this, is, you know, this is the really important part of my talk. I came here to tell, tell you this part. I told you that story, so I could tell you this one. So let's jump in. I said at the start that Bitcoin is the world's first global money and unified payment network. So what do all of those words mean? So with money, I'm going to cheat a little bit. I'm going to assume that Bitcoin is money because I can use it to buy stuff and take a lot. Um, if somebody's willing to accept an exchange, I can use it as money. But there are, there's, more, there's a lot of interesting stuff on here, and if you want, you can get me in the questions, and I'll go into some more detail. I've got some slides on the gold stand and whatnot. But I said, it was a, I said it was a global money. What do I mean by that? I mean it's a global money in contrast to the current system of money we have, which is boarded. So this is a trip I did earlier in the year. I went to Dubai and Thailand, and I came back. And across seven cities, I had to do six currency conversions. I had to go from rands to dollars to baht, back to dollars, to dirhams, back to dollars to rands. And at every point of conversion, I had to pay a fee, I had to seek out an exchange, I had to fill out some KYC protocol, um, big schlep. But in all this time of all of these currency conversions and inconveniences, my email address didn't change. You could still get hold of me whether I was in Phuket or whether I was in Dubai. Same email address, same way to contact me. No hassle. Now, imagine if we had a system where you had to have a different email address for every place you went to. So uh, we used to have a system like that. It was called The Post. And I don't think uh, anybody still uses that as their main medium of Communication. Bitcoin operates on the same principles as email. So regardless of where I was, no matter where I was in the world, I had complete access to my Bitcoin. I could receive money, I could send money, could do transactions. Bitcoin is not boarded money because it doesn't exist anywhere, it's not held in a bank somewhere. It's on the internet, on the cloud, it operates on the same principles as email, it's everywhere. Now I said it's a unified payment network. What do I mean by unified? So, in order to explain what I mean by unified, I, let me tell you what happened with email, how email unified the different mediums of communication. Before we had email, you had, to adapt, you had to use a different method of communication depending on what kind of communication you were sending. So if you wanted to send text, you, uh, you want documents, you've got to get a, use a fax machine. If you want to send audio, you've got to use the radio. Uh, if you want to, you know, a video, you can send it on a TV, but you can't receive. And then email came along and replaced all of that. So email is data agnostic. It doesn't matter what kind of data you want to send, you can send it using email. And as a result, a lot of friction has been removed, reduced from the system. Um, the costs have come down. It's much easier, much lower technical complexity in the end for end users to send information. And I think that Bitcoin does the same thing for money. This is what our current system of money looks like. We have different payment networks for every scale and kind of payment. If you want to pay someone a small transaction, cash. Uh, EFTs, if you want to, to pay an institution or a larger amount, and that takes about two days to settle. Earlier this year, I, I tried to send someone money to the United States, and it was going to take about a week and cost about a thousand bucks to send the money. Um, and we have a lot of systems, depending on whether you're a government or a bank or and whatnot, but with Bitcoin, you can do everything. So, me personally, on Bitcoin, I've done transactions to individuals, I've done transactions to institutions, I've done transactions with merchants, I've done done transactions locally, I've done transactions globally, I've done transactions that are worth 10 rand, that are worth 10,000 rand, and that are worth 10 cents. And I've done it all on the exact same system, using the same underlying technology, and as far as Bitcoin is concerned, that's just movement from one address to another address. So in the same way that email unified the systems of communication, I feel like this technology can unify the systems of payment. Make it a lot simpler, remove a lot of the friction. But now a payment network is only as good as the number of people using it. No point if nobody's using it. And uh, so i got the slide over here, and the orange is the daily value of Bitcoin transacted on the Bitcoin network. So every single day, on the Bitcoin network, people transfer value between each other, and this is how much. And it's a bit difficult to see because it's an exponential. Uh, That's the log graph, so every jump is order of magnitude 10. And you can see that in about 2010, it was about $10,000 a day was moving on this network. And then at some point in 2013, it was over a million. And as of 2018, over a billion dollars goes back and forth between addresses every single day on this network. So people, a lot of people tell me, you know, Bitcoin is dead, Bitcoin's over, but the, as far as the usage goes, it is the highest it's ever been in Bitcoin's history. Um, over a billion dollars, what do you call it, goes back and forth and set forth every single day between accounts. And uh, people always ask me, should I invest in Bitcoin? You know, my sapai And my answer is, I don't know. I'm not yet to give investment advice. But what I can say is this. As Bitcoin has been more and more used by more and more people, its value goes up. And that's simple supply and demand argument. The more useful it is, the more people want it. And, uh, what is the gonna say? So I'm not saying it will go, it'll go up forever, but assuming that people continue to use it, it will keep getting more valuable. And part of the reason why I believe that will be the case is something called Metcalfe's Law. So Metcalfe's Law, most people are actually familiar with it, but maybe don't know it by this name. Uh, it's that the value of a network is proportional to the number of users squared. So, if you have a network with two users, you have one connection. If you have users with a network with five users, ten connections, and ten users, forty-five connections. So, uh, it's a quadratic. I think it's like n, n minus one over two. But the basic idea is that networks become more powerful exponentially the more people actually use them. And uh, this is one of the reasons why you see for why you can't just create a new social network tomorrow and outcompete Facebook. Because it's much easier for everyone else to join, for, for, for you to join Facebook and be connected to everyone else, than it is for everyone else to leave Facebook and join you on your social network. And this is why over the last 10 years we've seen Bitcoin, the more people use it, the more people want to use it. And this is also my argument for why a lot of people ask me, should I invest in, uh, you know, I've heard about Bitcoin, but what about this other coin? Uh, they, have, uh, they have a colorful name on the internet, but, uh, but I'm not supposed to swear, so they're not so good coins. But uh, these coins, if you look at the transaction volume, Not even compatible. Uh, Ethereum, I think, is the second biggest competitor to Bitcoin. It doesn't even do 10% of Bitcoin's daily volume. Um, The rest are peanuts. So, Metcalf's law, the more more people use it, the the more people accept Bitcoin, the easier it becomes for the next person to accept Bitcoin. And that's why I said Bitcoin is the world's first global money and unified payment network. But again, now, why should we care? What does that mean for us specifically? So, let me take you through a bunch of case studies and show you what what it means for us is that right now you think you have free markets. You think uh, you can go to the supermarket and buy Heinz chili and all gold light. But here's one decision you can't make. You can't decide whether to conduct that transaction in South African rands or U.S. dollars. If you're in South Africa, you have to accept rands. It's the law, you've got to pay your taxes in rands, you've got to receive payments from your customers in rands. But thought experiment. If you were given the option by your company to receive your salary in different currency, How many of you would take U.S. dollars over rands? Okay, how many of you would take rands? Uh, (laughs) How many of you would take uh, Zimbabwean dollars? So so not so many. So all I'm trying to illustrate with this example is that as far as currencies go, people, you, you have some level of preference. You are not completely indifferent to what currency you're receiving. But you're essentially being forced to pick one particular currency. So, you're forced to buy this when you may want this, which is a sub-optimal choice. And that's more or less the same as being forced to buy this when you want this. And if we really be honest with ourselves, who, who really enjoys a light tomato sauce? But, but, uh, but the impact of making, a, of making a sub-optimal choice is, is well understood in economics. And the, mo- the moment you take away those barriers to making the sub-optimal choice, people make entirely different choices. So we got to see that already with the internet and media. So in the old days, before the internet, and media was bordered and local, we had to watch uh, South African uh, news channels and watch the African TV shows, and we had to go to South African cooking courses. But today, when you take the borders off, we can watch international um, news channels, and we can watch international TV shows, and you don't need to pay for a cooking course, you can learn directly from someone free anywhere in the world on YouTube. And in most of these cases, the costs have come down the quality, the, the, the service and the options we have are arguably improved. So when you remove the barriers, people's choices change entirely. And for an example of what this could be like, I've already got a company that is operating in the Bitcoin economy, and it'll show you something interesting about what happens when you move this new system. So this is a website called Bitrefill. and it's my phone number, so don't use it to send me spam emails and stuff. But how it works is that you type in your phone number, and then you pay with Bitcoin and you get airtime. But uh, here's the cool thing about it. They support over 700 operators in 160 currency, uh, countries. This slide's a bit outdated. As of, uh, as of uh, this morning, they've now do 700 operators in 160 currencies. If they wanted to do this on the current system, you would need to have support for 160 different currencies. But this is how business works in the Bitcoin economy. It doesn't matter where anyone is in the world, if you agree on the currency, you can do business. So I'm in South Africa. Bittery Phil is in Sweden but I can buy airtime for my nieces in Saudi Arabia if I want to. They can receive the money inst- well, for the Light Network instantly, give the airtime, no banks involved, no third parties. I mean, that's pretty cool. And this kind of thing, when, when you operate in this economy, is going to change a lot for how financial services works. And it's going to change the dynamics that exist between companies and customers and, and governments. And one of the best examples that I can show you of this is a company that already did this called Binance. So who here um, has heard of Binance? Okay, so at least a few people. So, so Binance is the world's largest cryptocurrency exchange. They did about uh, $200 million in profit in Q1 of this year, which is higher than Deutsche Bank, which is a 146-year-old bank. So these guys are not small, uh, not small players. And they were based in Hong Kong until, and, until recently, and they were getting fed up with the way that the Hong Kong regulator was taking a certain stance on cryptocurrencies. So making it very hard for them to, to do their business and the reporting. And so they decided to leave. They went to Malta. But here's the interesting thing. They were the first company in history to leave and take their customers with them. So I'm over here. Binance was over here. They moved halfway across the world and nothing changed for me as the end consumer. The same Binance, I used them a week or two ago, exactly the same service. And this, this is a game changer because this means that For the first time, governments are actually going to have to compete with each other. Malta is going to have to compete with Hong Kong to provide the most productive environment for business. And if they don't, the cost of leaving is only going down. I mean, how many local um, insurance companies can say that if they were forced to move for any reason, that their customers will follow them? But when your payments are global, it doesn't matter where you are. And for an image about this kind of thing, it's not just governments that are going to have to adapt. To, the, to, to, to businesses. Businesses are also going to adapt to how to global customers. And one of the best examples I have of this is uh, somebody local, uh, our friend's uh, DSTV. So uh, I, I, don't have, I don't have a DSTV subscription, I've got a Netflix one. Part of the reason is because it costs a fraction of the price. So DSTV, for 30 years, when media was boarded and local, had a monopoly, they could charge whatever they want, provide whatever service they want, and then the internet came along, All the borders went away, and now Netflix and Showmax and anybody can come from anywhere in the world and provide a service. And they can do it at a fraction of the cost. And uh, DSTV have uh, done the noble thing. They've uh, complained to the regulator, said, you know, please save us. Um, And I think probably the only reason that they may still be in business is because of sport. But tomorrow, if someone has to come and offer sport on on a platform like this, I mean, who knows? And that's why Today, in the financial industry, we're still operating in a boarded economy. This is how the world looks from my perspective. I've got a local insurance company, and I've got a local asset manager, and I've got a local bank. And that's all local, all boarded, all because finance is boarded. But in the future, who knows? Because if my email provider is sitting in California, and my exchange is in Malta, and my phone's get made by people in Korea, why can't my bank be in China? Why can't my insurance company be in France? Why, can't, why do I have to invest in a fund of fund with Satrix? Why can't I go directly into Vanguard's funds? So if you were operate, so if you, operating in South Africa as a boarded company, which you have to currently, you just have to worry about this. And if you it into Africa, then you have to worry about this. But I'm saying that soon, you're gonna have to worry about this. And the, world's a, the world is a big place. If you take one thing away from my talk today, just you can forget the rest. It's uh, that the internet came for media and now the internet has come for money. And there is one saving grace. Uh, we're still in the 56K modem days. It's still very difficult to use Bitcoin, it's still very confusing. But it doesn't take long before we get from year to year. Thank you everybody.
0: Um, Thanks, Imran, for that insightful talk. Any questions? And, hey,
1: Demba. Yeah, the mic is coming. (laughs) Uh, There, yeah.
2: Thank you. Um, yes, thanks for that talk, Imran. Thank mm-hmm. uh, Um My interest is in you mentioned the Bitcoin exchange, mm-hmm. and, and I, if I remember, the issues about security have arisen at exchange level. Could you mm-hmm. just? I don't
1: even really understand what a Bitcoin exchange is, and why sure. there's a sure. security issue there? Sure. So um, I can go into some more detail on that. So one of the th- one of the consequences of Bitcoin removing third parties is that you don't need a bank anymore to hold your money. So you can get an app called the Bitcoin Wallet and you can keep your own private keys. And that means that you have your own money, nobody can take it away from you, nobody can spend it, you don't need anyone's permission to do a transaction. But along with that, it also means that if you lose those keys, there's no Gmail to reset your password. So people have lost Bitcoins and one of the biggest problems in user adoption is that people, a lot of people are scared of holding their own Bitcoins because, there's, I mean, at the moment, it's still difficult to secure your passwords, but there's a lot of like functionality that's coming with like cloud well, encrypted backups for your passwords and whatnot, but for now, it's difficult. Uh, there are some devices that make it a bit easier, but a lot of people facing that complexity choose instead to go into an exchange or they store their money on a website like Luno. So these companies, you can think of Luno and Coinbase and these exchanges as kind of like banks. They will hold your Bitcoin for you and protect it for you, but that also means that your Bitcoin falls under them their responsibility ultimately. So there have been cases where they can block you from withdrawals if they want to. And because it's not as regulated as space, you know, there aren't as clear directions as with a bank. But also if they get hacked and your money gets stolen, it's the same thing as if a bank gets robbed. But yeah, I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges to making Bitcoin easier for people to use. It is getting better over time. There are some devices called, like, called hardware wallets that make storage easier, but yeah. Maybe that, does that answer your question?
0: Any other questions? Thanks. Um, it was a very good talk. I enjoyed it. Um, the, so one thing I never quite understand about Bitcoin, I understand you explained the, what people are looking for, faster transactions, more security,
1: mm-hmm.
0: low transaction costs. But I don't see why we want a currency stuck in the middle of that. If I want to pay locally, I want to pay czar to czar, and mm-hmm. I want it to be fast, secure, and low transaction costs. If I want to pay internationally, I want to pay czar to US dollars at a fair exchange rate. Mm-hmm. I want it to be fast and cheap
1: and, and secure. Why do I want Bitcoin at any point? Sure, so that's, uh, yeah, so that's a whole section, that's actually a very interesting question and a whole lot of, uh, there's a whole section of that I, I guess you could say I didn't talk about. But um, yeah, I mean, there probably will be in the future some products coming from the traditional banking system that uh, will allow you to do that, probably. I mean, a lot of them are studying the technology behind Bitcoin and I think it's probably inevitable, I don't know how long it'll take, but we'll probably be able to do that. But. The real, sort of, for me at least, one of the biggest things about why you would want to hold Bitcoin rather than holding ZAR or another currency is that, um, its and I didn't go into this in the talk, but it's it's a currency that can't be debased. And what I mean by that is that, because you have all these nodes watching everybody, everybody has to follow the same rule set, and if anyone deviates from that, they're not, they're gonna kick you off the network. So that means that nobody really controls it, nobody can really change the rules, and there have been some interesting fights in the Bitcoin community about this, but ultimately, Nobody can really go against, you, you know, what is the consensus. So, and there, so one of the consensus rules is that there's 21 million Bitcoin. Nobody can create more beyond that. It's about 20,000-something-something-something. Something, something. But, but in, So one of the reasons why you may want to hold Bitcoin or why anyone may want to hold Bitcoin as opposed to a different currency is that right now it's extremely volatile and people don't trust it. But over the long term, it may be a more stable store of value than, than the other currencies. So sorry, do you mind... Um, Jumping to slide 88. So, year here, so, is sort of a, um, a measure of the, of the purchasing power of the dollar over 100 years. And part of the, so, again, I didn't go into this in detail in my talk, and I'll, maybe we can go into this afterwards, is that the central bank uh, Central bank um, control of the money does have consequences. And one of them is that the dollar has lost 95% of its purchasing power over over you know, a very long period of time. I mean, we've kind of seen the same thing with South African rands. You know, we've lost about half our value over the last uh, five or seven years. So one of the advantages is that you're holding something which is scarce and that nobody can actually print more of, yeah. which in specifically in countries like Zimbabwe and Venezuela, that's been a lot more attractive than the, the local currency that they've had. So more so in, in, you could say, in the poorer countries where the currency is not as controlled, that's where it's had the highest utility.
0: Any other questions? Maybe a question from me. Sure. Uh, you said the cost of, of transactions is quite low. I did a bit of Bitcoin arbitrage myself. Yeah. But the... the, the um, uh, likewise, yeah. But the, the transaction cost in that is huge. It's like 5,000 rand uh, types of transactions. Was, that, was that on Luna? Between Luna and Bitstamp. Yeah, so... I managed
1: uh, to still... So even
0: can... though you pay that that much in transaction costs... Made a bit of money, luckily.
1: <laughs> sure, so I can comment that. So yeah, I was also one of the guys arbitraging when that happened. In but anyways, on the cost, that's another consequence of what um, Tempo was mentioning, is that if you store your money on exchanges, they can charge you whatever fees you want. So I've had this, I've seen a lot of support emails and complaints to Luno that they tend to charge a very, very high fee relative to what the market is. So I didn't go into these dynamics as well, but it, it differs. If you're doing a, a transaction on the Bitcoin blockchain, you have to pay for it. And... It depends on how urgently you want that transaction to happen. So if you want it confirmed within the next 10 minutes and you want to pay a high fee, I mean, I, it depends on, again, it depends on how many people are using the network at a given time. So you, in December, the fees were quite high. Right now, after one of the network upgrades called Segwit, the fees have, have dropped, so I've been doing, like I've been doing high priority transactions for like a rand. You can do low ones for like 20 cents or lower. But the fees thing is a concern right now for like wide adoption. And again, with exchanges, they can charge you whatever the fee they want to. So. I, I am, Luno claims they're charging a network fee you know, based on the network, but I have a, I've, I've seen the network a lot of the time, what the actual fee is. they definitely making a profit of their customers. Um, with the light network as well, so this is a new technology that's going to be built on Bitcoin. You're going to be able to do the settlement. You're basically going to be able to transfer the money, but pay a much lower fee. So for that Satoshi's, uh, what do you call it, uh, that Satoshi's space transaction, I paid nothing. I think in total, Over something like about 100 transactions, I paid less than like 10 cents, South African cents. Like, so technology is also improving over time.
0: You know, there at the back.
2: hi, Imran. Thanks for the talk. Uh, What happens as you get to the end of the supply line for Bitcoin? Will the network fall apart? How would proof of work continue to work?
1: Do you mean when the. uh, Yeah,
2: when you get to 21 million, does the network fall apart?
1: So, how it works is that it's over a very long period, so it's gonna, it's gonna take until I think 2142, because how it works is every four years, the number of Bitcoin you get from mining halves. So it used to be 50, and then it was uh, 25 Bitcoin per block, and now it's 12.5, and it'll keep going for about a, over 100 years, and then hit zero. And kind of the long-term view of Bitcoin is that over time, the fees that the people pay to transfer on the blockchain itself will replace the mining reward. And we've kind of seen that happening slowly over time. So the idea is that the fees that people get, that people pay to be in, included in a block, will slowly replace the mining reward. But then also, in order for that to avoid people paying extremely high fees, you move a lot of the transactions onto like higher layers. So one of the interesting things about the, studying the internet is that there are a lot of, there's something called the stack. There's a lot of sort of layers before you actually get to the, you know, data moving, there's like a transport layer and, you know, there's like a communications layer and the idea is that Bitcoin would work somewhere in a similar way. You'd have the base layer, which is the blockchain, and you build a whole lot of layers on top of that that people can transact on and it would all get consolidated and settled on this blockchain and those fees would pay for the mining reward. But that's, that's, given that we've never seen a system like this, it's completely a new experiment. We're going to have to see how it plays out over time.
2: I just have a question about um, regulation and taxation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Are there any regulations uh, in place for some countries? And at what point will governments have to start uh, taxing uh, these transactions if, Mm -hmm. if people are getting... Paid in bitcoins? um, Do you need to declare it anywhere in the world? And also, uh, can you comment on, uh, uh, you know, uh, the opportunities uh, this cryptocurrency creates for uh, money laundering? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it seems like (laughs) the perfect uh, currency to, you know, for the black market. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, what, what, what securities and regulation will there be for that?
1: Cool, so I got two questions from that. Uh, first is kind of about the regulation, and the second is about money laundering. So for the, for the regulation part, I mean, I've struggled a bit with this as well because I find that, um, so it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't really work like anything we've had before because Bitcoin is at once a payment network, but also an asset, but also a currency. And the re- current regulatory framework um, is very confusing and it doesn't really fit what happens. So. I mean, I've used Bitcoin to buy books and coffee and stuff. Now, that's a forex transaction. Do I have to pay capital gains on that? But if I buy it and sell it to do arbitrage, is that... So, currently, what's happening is that a lot of countries are taking a very hands-off, wait-and-see stance to classifying it or coming up with a regulatory framework. I mean, SARS has kind of done something similar with uh, the tax rules. But what's been happening in the U.S. is that People have, businesses have been trying to push for more regulation and saying, can we regulate the space? Can we come up with a framework so we know we're not breaking the law? That kind of thing. Like, There's been a couple of, a couple of dozen companies wanting to launch a Bitcoin ETF. And the regulator, I think, is being very cautious and saying, look, we, we need more time. We need more time. So there's a lot of regulatory uncertainty around the whole field. And as a result, a lot of people, uh, a lot of people, like you say, in the developer world, they are very skeptical to start doing business with it and then subsequently aspects of it uh, you know, fall under some regulatory framework they're not prepared for. But then what happens is that, like I said earlier, you can move. So Malta has taken a, free, uh, they've taken a stance of putting a very like positive cryptocurrency set of regulations up. So a company called Blockstream, they've got an office there, Binance has moved there. Now what happens is that when you have a very, you know either your, your regulation is too complicated or it doesn't work, a lot of people can just move elsewhere because you're a global business. So I think regulators are also going to be faced with that tension. So we're gonna have to wait and kind of see what happens. As for the money laundering thing, um, so one of the things I didn't go into is that Bitcoin is not actually completely anonymous. So because you have a public ledger, every transaction is recorded on the ledger. And so if I pay Paper Pig, you'll see a bunch of numbers and digits, which doesn't tell you that I pay Paper Pig. But subsequently, years later, if somebody can link that transaction to me, they know I made the payment. So what happened, um, there's been a couple of instances of this already, you can Google a company called Silk Road. But um, they tried to create, you could say, a market on this, and they sold a bunch. You could pretty much list whatever you wanted. And some people started um, listing, like, illegal narcotics and stuff. What happened was the regulator was able to, well, at least the prosecution was able to kind of, um, years later, was able to, by getting people to squeal and kind of thing, get them to say, you know, that was the transaction to me, and, you know, eventually shut down the market. Um, And then one, I think the FBI agent who was investigating him, I think he stole the money, but then they caught him as well because it was on the blockchain. So I think Bitcoin is, is a pretty, like, as far as uh, privacy goes, it's a pretty, it's, it is quite private if you use it in a certain, like, specific way. But if you're trying to do dodgy stuff, like, um, the best medium for that is still cash because it's anonymous, private, uh, and fungible, and also no record. You can't be tried 20 years later for doing deals in cash. But with blockchain, like, it's there forever.
0: Right, I think that we. A uh, quick question, and then maybe just a quick answer from you, because we've actually run out of time. But sure, sure. let's take
2: that last Hello. one. Mm-hmm. Hi, Imran. I'm um, at Ellen Gray. One thing um, that I didn't see mentioned, I guess, was just the environmental sustainability from mm-hmm. a proof of, um, uh, I guess, work concept uh, yeah. aspect. I mean, Ethereum uses proof of stake, and um, mm-hmm. uh, the Ripples don't have mining at all. So I, I don't know what comment you've got from an environmental sustainability sure. perspective.
1: Sure, so um, do you mind just jumping to slide 76 for me? Cool. So, <laughs> so, so um, it's, it's a pretty you asked this question now when I'm running out of time because I feel like I could talk for half an hour on this thing, but uh, what I can do is tell you that um, proof of stake is not a golden bullet. There's a lot of security holes that aren't that aren't addressed. like but anyway, I think a more important question from the environmental side is not how much does Bitcoin use, but how much does it use relative to the current system? And uh, so this is from two papers by a guy called Hasma Cook, who's an Oxford scholar. He's got a bunch of papers. I strongly recommend uh, Google this guy. His papers are available free online. He's written a bunch. Um, and he goes into a lot of detail about the usage of proof of work, the, the actual you know, in it, carbon emissions of producing the mining equipment, of fabricating the silicon chips, like a lot of detail, it's good stuff. but The the takeaway from this slide is that, from the top one, uh, this is more recent, Bitcoin recently passed over-the-counter gold settlement in daily transaction volume. And it does so using less uh, O2 emissions than gold. And that's just gold mining. Gold, Bitcoin mining is the same as Bitcoin settlement. So it currently uses less than gold. And from the, uh, if you compare it to the banking system, that's the one at the bottom. So this is a bit outdated. But even if you multiply the Bitcoin mining by 100 times, it is still using significantly less electricity than the current banking system, with all these offices and you know, buildings, and that's not even counting the impact of like credit cards, which are plastic, and all the paper receipts. So I think it's an interesting question. I think that there's a lot to dig into there. We don't know the full extent because it's still unfolding, but uh, there's a lot of interesting research out there. You can go take a look at if you're concerned. We can also pick it up afterwards.
0: Right. on that note, Imran, thanks a
1: lot for a very well-prepared talk. <laughs> and our uh... uh, last thing, if you're on the app, please uh, give some feedback. Cool, thank you.